So near the beginning of this quarantine, Disney gave us a great gift, uh, and they released their new Pixar movie, Onward, straight to their streaming platform, Disney+. Plus. And so uh, we were able to watch that. I watched it with my girls, and as soon as it was over, I looked over at Andre with watery eyes, and I said, that is my favorite movie. Uh, it's so good. I swear I want, I'm not going to ruin it for you, though. Uh, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the setting and one character. The, the film, it's set in a world which has lost its sense of enchantment. In a world which once was full of wonder and magic and adventure, but all of that has been displaced by uh, convenience and now cynicism. And they've lost a sense of connection with transcendence and with each other, leading to lives that are somehow both more mundane and more stressful. Does any of this sound familiar? But there's this elf named Barley who stands alone as the only character who hasn't fallen into this trap. Barley has retained his wonder. And he's looked down on by others in the film. But when his brother finds himself wrapped up in a quest for his father, Barley is a constant encourager and companion and oftentimes an unlikely guide and source of wisdom. He's, he's a catalyst for transformation for other characters throughout the film as he reconnects those characters with who they really are. And I won't ruin the ending for you all, but it is beautiful, and I commend it. What I want to say is that in a world like ours, a world much like the world of Onward, a world whose wonder has wandered far away, may we be like barley ambassadors of an ancient power, which we know is not some impersonal force, but a person of love who has made us for significance. And may we shine as his lights, connecting people with this person whom they have traded away for things far less good. And now with this in mind, let's read this text now from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 16 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Make your name holy in this time and in our homes. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
Now, this passage, it's talking about salvation a little differently than some of you are used to, probably. Uh, The Bible talks about salvation in a couple different ways, uh, past, present, and future. So, for instance, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved. Past, we have been saved. It also says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the word of the cross is the power of God toward us who are being saved, present. And Romans 13 tells us to wake up from our sleeping because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is a future salvation. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And this is all through the victory and power of our resurrected King Jesus who bore our penalty on the cross and offers us his resurrection life. But there is, there's, there's this biblical nuance to salvation in the way it talks about it. And I believe that in this text, it's that present salvation, this ongoing deliverance from the power of evil within us that he is using this, this term to talk about here. And God, he invites us into this work. Paul makes that clear in in verses 12 and 13 when he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice it doesn't say, Work out your own salvation so that God will work in you. It says, Work out your own salvation for, because God is working in you to do this. As Paul says, talks to this Philippian church, he is simultaneously here shining a light on their effort and God's grace. And and that may seem strange to us until we understand something that Dallas Willard has put very clearly. He says this, that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace is the unearned gift, we all know, of forgiveness of sins. But it's more than that. It's also the unearned gift of the power to live a new life in Christ. And he invites us to live in step with that grace, to live out of that grace. And if we don't understand the relationship of our work and God's grace then it could be hard to understand exactly why Paul puts it the way he does in this, in this passage. I mean, if he's trying to encourage them to put forth effort, why would he tell them that it's God doing the work? Right? If God is working in me, why would I work? Couldn't this truth lead to passivity? Well, I thought of three reasons why it wouldn't. Three reasons why this truth uh, would move us to work out our own salvation. I thought about a few others too, but these are the three I felt led to share today. Um, Okay, so here's the three ways. Wonder, confidence, and identity. And I want to take a few minutes to look at these ideas. First, wonder. Wonder is our response to glory. When we behold something or someone who is truly glorious, we are awestruck with wonder. And and there's incalculable wonder in the Christian life. We are walking miracles if we have the eyes to see it. This poet John Donne once said that there is nothing that God hath established in the constant course of nature and which therefore is done every day, but would seem a miracle and exercise our admiration 
if it were done but once. In other words, if God had made only one tree, we would be blown away by it, counted a miracle. But because he's so generous with his glory, we grow apathetic and callous to it. But, but everything God does is incredible, especially the work in sinners' hearts to bring it to life, to bring them to repentance and faith and love and shine as his lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. God Almighty himself, who founded the seas and the stars, is at work in your heart. This ought to fill us with wonder. Wonder that is all true wonder does, humbles us to our knees and also makes us want to be a part of it somehow, to take part in it, to be wrapped up in it. See, because wonder is our response to glory, but rarely are we satisfied just to behold glory. We want to enter into it and have it enter into us. We want to share in it and connect with it and somehow attach ourselves to it and participate in it. Right? This is why uh, when an athlete performs incredibly, so many people want to wear their jersey or touch their trophy. It's why we want autographs from celebrities. It's why we take pictures of ourselves next to incredible sights rather than just taking a picture of the incredible sight itself. Right? We want to be a part of things that are glorious. And, and, and God invites us into a far greater glory to participate in a far greater glory. There is nothing more glorious than his grace. What is happening inside your heart is no insignificant matter. It is God who is working in you. God is working in you. And this fundamental reality is what we should remind ourselves of each day, each moment. And in doing so, we will naturally be drawn to participate in it, to, to cooperate with his willing and his working within us. So that's the first thing. The second way that God, the truth of God's working in us might move us to work out our own salvation is that it gives us great confidence. I'm always saying that, that a big part of living the Christian life is pursuing things that we simply cannot do, right? We see, we see some of these things in Philippians, right? Last week we saw do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing, right? And, and then uh, uh, later in this book, we'll see rejoice in the Lord always, we don't even think of joy as something we can muster up ourselves, let alone do it always, right? These, these commands almost seem ridiculous until you realize that you aren't doing it alone. This calling, this life, we can feel utterly inadequate for it. But when we know that God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, that is an empowering truth. That gives us hope that things can be different, that we can be different. It's like he said in chapter one, I am sure of this, he said, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
the truth that God's power and spirit is working in us to produce the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of obedience. It gives us confidence, the confidence we need to pursue the impossible. For what is impossible with man is what? It's possible with God. So those are the first two, wonder and encouragement and confidence, right? The The third thing is identity. A new identity will shape how we live. Paul is always teaching us to become who we already are in Jesus. Paul teaches us that we are new creations in Jesus, new humans. And and he calls us to live like that is really true. It's, It's a core idea of what it means to be a Christian, to adopt a new story about myself. Even if I don't always live up to that story and that new identity, Paul wants us as followers of Jesus to live and become who we really are, who we truly are, adopt this new identity. And that's why we saw in the text last week that he talks about that that mind of radical love and and radical humility. And then he says, have this mind, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. And then what's he say? which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you have this mind, so have this mind. Become who you are. Live out your new life in Christ. The fundamental change happens to us when when our very sense of who we are is completely revolutionized. When we grasp that Christ has given us a completely new identity in him. Paul isn't just addressing behavior. He's addressing the core sources and motivations of our behavior. Behavior to him is just surface issue, just surface phenomenon that's generated from something far deeper within. That the way you behave is, comes out of the kind of person you are and the kind of person you think you are. The kind of worth and value and and what makes you who you are. And and if that is changing, then your life is going to change. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says your very being has drastically changed. You were darkness. Now you are light. And then the very next thing he says is this. Walk as children of the light. He's saying, walk in step with your new identity. You are light in the Lord. And and that is what he says in Philippians 2 as well. He says, though you live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, right? He says, you shine as lights. And he gives two defining markers of those who shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. First, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Second, hold fast to the word of life. So let's look at these. First, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That word grumbling is talking about a kind of complaining, the bad kind, the faithless kind. See, our complaining is often bad, but not always. There is another kind of complaining called lament, which is a faithful way to complain. Faithful complaining or lament, it's, it's an honest, 
groaning expression of what it's like to experience the trouble and the anguish and the grief of living in this fallen and futile world. It's done, though, in a relationship with God and does not accuse him of doing wrong, but trusts him that he is sovereign, wise, and good, even while we're wrestling with the brokenness of this world. God does not mind this kind of complaining. In fact, he encourages it and teaches us in the Bible how to do it. And I wish I could get into that, but this text is not about faithful complaining. It's about faithless complaining, often called grumbling in the Bible. And it is sinful because it accuses God of doing wrong. Or it just doesn't take him into account at all. So whether directly or indirectly, grumbling complaints are communicating that God is not good enough or not faithful enough, not loving enough, not wise enough, or not powerful enough. Otherwise, he would run the world differently. And grumbling, it's part of our fallen human nature. It's everywhere. It's our default mode, really. Uh, In his book, Letters to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis is writing to a fictional friend uh, about prayer, and he says something I think is so poignant for us right now. He says that people are merely amusing themselves by asking for patience which a famine or a persecution would call for, if in the meantime, the weather and every other inconvenience sets them grumbling. He's pointing to this strange inconsistency that most of us have where we value the virtue of perseverance and faith-filled contentment in the midst of great hardship. And yet, in our average daily struggles, we somehow feel like entitled, like we have the right to be irritated and annoyed and grumble about it. This grumbling and disputing It's part of what is so crooked and twisted among our generation in this world. There's even a, there's a truth in in journalism, a truism really, that says, if it bleeds, it leads. Meaning, if the story is tragic or bad in some way, it will get greater attention. We dwell on the bad far more than we dwell on the good. And our attention is drawn toward drama and divisiveness. And so people who want our attention, such as news outlets, they prey upon this fallen inclination, this sinful inclination of our hearts, and they suck us in to more and more negativity. And and you might not even think of yourself as uh, someone who's a grumbler, maybe just a realist, you know? But I'm here to tell you that realism is often cynicism that's lightly veiled. And Henry Nouwen says that cynicism is a form of darkness calling out more darkness. And if you, read a, if you could read a transcript of everything you've said in the past week, how much darkness are you calling forth? Remember, Ephesians says you were darkness, but now you are light. Call forth light not darkness. We are called to be different. In the book, Every Moment Holy, there's a prayer that I think beautifully captures part of this idea from this passage. It's it's titled, A Liturgy for Waiting in Line. And its author, it's, it's the author's prayer 
for stewarding well that those petty irritations of waiting in line. And he's looking to God to empower him to live well in those moments, to wait well. And in the last part of the prayer, he talks about being a vessel and what kind of vessel he wants to be and contrasts two different kinds. And listen to this. He says, as I am a vessel, let me not be like a sodden paper cup full of steaming frustration, carelessly sloshing unpleasantness on those around me. Rather, let me be like a communion chalice reflecting the silvered beauty of your light, brimming with an offered grace. Amen. Too many of us are carelessly sloshing unpleasantness on those around us, rather than brimming with an offered grace. You are a vessel Do you want to be a sodden paper cup full of steaming frustration? Or do you want to be a communion chalice reflecting the beauty of God's light? In Christ, you are filled with his grace and his spirit to shine as his light. Your calling is to believe this with all your heart and to remind yourself of it every day and to live it out with all your might leaning not on your own understanding nor on your own strength, but on God's strength. We can't simply will ourselves to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's that's what we've been talking about with that paradox of working in God's power. It's not enough to merely want to be more content or to tell myself to buck up. We need to cultivate the practice of meeting Christ in these small moments of grief and frustration, and anger. We need to cultivate that practice of encountering Christ's death and resurrection, that big story of brokenness and redemption in the small and mundane moments of daily irritations that set us grumbling. Otherwise, we'll spend our lives imagining and hoping to share in Christ's suffering in some big way while we spend our actual days grumbling in discontentment and low-grade despair. And how we do that and cultivate that is actually the second thing Paul points to that should mark those who shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. He says, and I love that phrase. God's word is the word of life. When Jesus scared off a bunch of people by being Jesus and and saying some hard things, he turns to his closest disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And then Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And he communicates to us. And that communication brings life. And when we abide in it, it makes us lights. Because when when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Bible says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So we hold fast to him. And his word. And that word hold fast there, in other places in the Bible, it's used to mean hold your attention 
or holds your gaze or even holds your place. I think the way Jesus would say it is to abide. Abide. That's what he says, actually, in chapter 8 of John. It's John's gospel where he says this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As his disciples, we abide in his word. And then it, it, it's to be our soul's abode. And, and in John 15, Jesus turns it around and he says that his word is to abide in us. So it's to fill our hearts and, and surround our hearts. We are to remain in his word, returning to it again and again. This is, this is the theme of the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, this whole super long song where David, King David is just exulting in God's word. Let me read you a portion of it. He says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. David is talking about the same thing Jesus is talking about. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, free to from the free from that the crookedness and twistedness of the generation in the world in which you live, free to live rightly, free to experience true joy and true blessedness, free to shine as his lights in the world. And that shining, like when the, when the Bible talks about us, you know, shining as being lights, you know, it's talking about lamp. They didn't have light bulbs, of course, right? They had lamps, which burned some sort of fuel. The wick needed to be soaked in the fuel or it would burn out right away. And if we are to be lights, to be lamps, we must burn fuel. And the fuel we burn is the word of life. We need to be soaked in God's word, immersed in his story and his truth, because we do live in a, in a world, in a culture that is twisted and crooked in so many ways, and, and you will be influenced by that if you are not holding fast to the word of life. You will be. You'll be drugged down into it and drowned in it if you're not holding on to the life raft. In fact, every other place in the Bible that word twisted is used, it's talking about leading people astray. It's misleading people, distorting the truth, leading people away from it. And you need to reckon with, are you being influenced more by the crookedness and the twistedness that you live in the midst of, or are you being more influenced by the word of life? I love that Paul brings this, this up in this, in this short little passage, which has, is in the same context as verses 12 and 13, because that sets that most vital prerequisite. The Bible is not magic. There are people who know the Bible inside and out, and yet do not partake in the life of Jesus. Like, like the Pharisees, whom Jesus called a brood of vipers, 
They had memorized the whole Old Testament. It takes the power of God to transform a life, not just religious observance. But I think it's helpful to overlay verse 16 onto verses 12 and 13. And if we do that, it reads like this. Hold fast to the word of life with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we read and meditate and soak in and put into practice God's word, both individually and corporately, but we do that in utter dependence upon his power to do that work in us. And what it looks like to do that work to, to live in someone else's power, it, it looks like a desperate asking oftentimes. Asking him to do that work as we are living out this life, as we are holding fast to the word of life, just utterly dependent upon him. It's, it, it's this idea of what we talked about earlier, where we're working out our salvation. It's having that wonder and that confidence and that new identity of God himself working in us, that, that, that we invite that working in awe and wonder. And we trust in that working, in confidence, taking steps of obedience. And we rejoice with gratitude in that working. And we adopt the reality of that God working in us to make us his children as our new identity where we realize who we are, the fundamentally new self that is being renewed day by day. So this is no mere obligation. This is the means by which God works life in us and makes us lights to a lost world. We too were part of that crooked and twisted culture, and generation. But Jesus bore our crookedness and our twistedness on the cross. And he overcame it through his resurrection from the dead, uniting us with him in that resurrection, with his new life to make us new. And he has made you new. And he is making you new. And he will make you new. May you believe this and live as lights, forsaking, grumbling, and disputing, and holding fast to the word of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your grace through your Son. Give us renewed wonder at your glory and grace. And give us confidence in your power within us. Give us faith and hope in our identity as your children so that we will live counterculturally free from grumbling and counterculturally dependent on your word as our very life and that our light would illuminate your face for the lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.